podcast guys to demand huh we're going with it podcast guys demand a long view and a long price you must comply oh and spoilers watch out good morning faithful reader welcome fortunate seeker this is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as Wh- What does inbreeding demand? Will Nilan get to help bridge the river now that the enemy is gone? And when will Masego discover the formula for goblin fire? Uh, he's more of a hellfire guy, honestly. We fought, across field and river, carrying the tower's writ to the foot of the wall. We fought and did not grow old. Spoken Karsum verse attributed to Sharak the Blinded, chieftain of the Iron Bears, banned by imperial decree. The Iron Bears. I don't recall them doing anything or being anyone. Frankly, both in what we've reread for the podcast and what I recall from the original reading, they seem like a minor clan in the background. I think that's probably true for most of the clans, frankly. We get the the ones that are important are like junipers and hawkrums because those get those come up every so often, but aside from that, howling shields and the red wolves? Yes. And oh, the traitor was black spears, is that correct? No, I thought those were the war crime mercenaries the U.S. likes to use. Oh, my bad. No, I'm kidding. That's Black Rock, right? Are you thinking of Jason Bourne's Black Briar? I just found United States War Crimes as a Wikipedia page. Black Water. Oh, still water, got it. Interesting. So, this chapter is is Aftermath. Mm -hmm. Catherine has to cope with the fact that she's killed people, but it's special this time. And they do their accounting, and it was a, it was a victory. Don't get me wrong. They wiped out a good portion of the Silver Spears. They killed the Exiled Prince and the uh, Equerry. But their numbers are starkly reduced from already half-Legion quantity. And among the number reduced includes everyone's favorite person in the entire guide. But we'll see who I mean by that later. I'll give you a hint. Bridge. The chapter spends a lot of time, like you said, dwelling on the aftermath of the battle, dealing with the death of people under Kat's command, but also the death of other folks, uh, beginning with Catherine uh, starting to shoulder some of the blame for what's going on here, because she um, very cautiously admits, she, she hesitantly agrees that some of this is her fault when she says... In a way, one could even say that every death in the Lias Rebellion was on my head. And those first three words are doing some heavy lifting in this sentence. In a way, this is all entirely Kat's fault. But in another way, she's completely innocent in all of it. No, in a way, I kind of feel responsible for at least half of this podcast. In a way? Yeah, that's fair. Catherine loves to take on blame for so many things, take on responsibility for everything. But she can be creative with it. Just as she can be creative with exactly how she's being a Callowin partisan working for the oppressor. She despises the army they stood against because they were Free City's mercenaries playing hero in a Callowin war while on the take from the First Prince. The very kind of foreign soldiers who'd make Callow the battlefield for their glorious wars against evil over the centuries. And yeah, she's right. Callow has suffered as a battlefield, and she's right that Callow doesn't go unscathed by even a war for its liberation as these foreign soldiers trample over it to do so. But these are still, I'm not even going to say nominally, these are still fundamentally heroic armies, and 
I feel okay saying that because the inherent damage, destruction, and villainy of armies is acknowledged, but they are heroic. They have a prince and an equerry. Sorry, wrong tense. Yeah. But to save Callow, Catherine joins the boot on the throat and then kicks anyone coming in to lift it off just so she can lighten the boot and later put on the boot. And the boot is a crown. And that crown was Catherine Foundling. So there's a crown on the throat of all Callowans. Heavy, uh, choky is the neck that. Choky is the neck, as they say. Yeah, wait, you don't hear that one. Choky is the neck that penetrates the crown. Okay, we're off, we're off to a great start today. As is the integration of Callow into Prace. We, we talked about this before, um, with the kind of what have the Romans done for us uh, discussion on the benefit of having a pretty organized and competent government versus a monarchy. Um, and Kat brings that up here, but not in an infrastructure or economic sense but rather in a social sense um that creation was growing more connected specifically when it comes to the people of callow and Prace. um she says that walls had been brought down by the conquest that no one could build back up lines blurred between friend and foe for better or worse i was the heiress to that legacy uh n- note here no no right she's not the heiress she's wrong wrong character um but the Mixing she's talking about here is that her army is made up of Kalowins, Tagreb, Soninke, orcs, ogres, goblins. Like, there are, there's a huge, like, the cross-section of her army spans from western Kalo to eastern Prace. It's everything. Um, and there's, you know, it's it's more of that, like, oh, was the conquest actually a good thing? Uh, pro tip, no. Uh, showing up and killing a bunch of people so that you can have their farmland is not going to be a good thing. But... There's more nuance added here, um, this sort of like tearing down of historical enemies based on basically bloodlines uh, and turning it into uh, what she refers to as a terrifyingly rational breed of evil, uh, you know, the, what's coming in here, um, be, which can imitate good when it serves its purposes. It's, first of all, you know, shout, uh, little name drop title drop here um but yes that is the name of the web no the word listen the word rational or uh wait what it's practical isn't it you know it's they're synonyms podcast guys (laughs) talking erratic etc is a (laughs) fan-made podcast discussing erratic etc's a terrifyingly rational breed of evil (laughs) listen i'd read that too so i don't want to hear it i feel that We've established we would not only read everything EE has published, but in fact assist him in publishing two hours more of content than he ever has previously. Oh, that's fair. Regardless, it's a it's a social. Which I think makes us co-authors now. I think so, but not legally or financially, and definitely not officially. And please disregard everything said in the last like fifteen seconds or so. Please disregard everything said in the last fifty-seven episodes or so. Honestly, it's probably for the best. <laughs> Uh, but the, the social dynamic to the benefits of the conquest, much as they are overshadowed by a violent conquest, uh, is just one that isn't really discussed in universe much before now. So, you know, it's nice to see Kat reminiscing sort of at the end of a battle about that side of things. Kat reminiscing at the end of a battle, you know, just standing up there having a good thing. The screaming, dying soldiers below the the roar of wounded and the, lame. <laughs> the green the glow of yeah. burning flesh. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Goblin Fire, Goblin Fire, in fact, I'm going to say with some certainty, doesn't have a particular stink as it burns it, because we would know by now. And it probably burns the smell. Actually, because as we are told in this chapter, Goblin Fire could use anything as fuel, although it spreads faster across certain types of grounds. Um, and I don't know that we know this for sure, other than. Just because the scale of goblin, like the amount of goblin fire that is used, varies drastically. How long does goblin fire burn? Given you know, fuel, it it can't burn literally forever, or the world would be goblin fire, right? So 
you put goblin fire, it can could be the fact that it can burn mud and water and like it, that it can burn anything. How do you? How does it stop burning? How does it go out? How does it stop spreading? Catherine's incident in Summerholm, the first time, not the second, mm-hmm. left her unconscious for two days, as we see in chapter 13 in book one, Order. And when Captain comes to retrieve her when she becomes conscious, she asks, that's still burning? And Captain says, they managed to cordon it off, but almost half the quarter went up in flames. Istrid had her legionaries evacuate the people in time, at least. And that's what we get there on the length of the burn. Right. And that that's the thing is, okay, a couple of days are, and it's continuing to burn. It's corded off. How, though? Well, if we go back a chapter, I prepared this in response to your question in advance, and I'm not working my way back chapter by chapter to find the answers. This is a dialogue-based understanding Uh one of them Greek philosophers did it, probably Diogenes. He did all the cool stuff. Mm-hmm. We learn that as the foundry goes up in flames, it, Goblin Fire, burned everything, including water and even magic. Seven days and seven nights it would keep burning, impossible to put out until it stopped on its own, which is frankly the best answer. So it burns for seven days, and the amount of destruction is just based on how rapidly a what kind of fuel is around it to determine how rapidly it spreads. So cordoning it off is basically putting things like wet mud around it to slow it down so that after seven days it hasn't destroyed too much. Yep. Maybe actually you try to build a dome over it or something so that it runs out of air. Not because running out of air will mean it will stop burning, but that's one less thing to burn. I think the logistics of building a large dome over a fire mean that that would take longer to do than the seven days, probably. Yes, it's something to do while everything's on fire. That is important. They do say the number one killer of when it comes to goblin fire is not the flames or the lack of air, but rather the boredom. Well, it can burn boredom. That's the problem. Yeah, and that'll get you. Also, why does it spread so much around Catherine? Because of the vibes. Whatever you want to call those vibes, Catherine has more than most people. It burns her she vibes? Is... It burns her vibes. Whoa. That's why they grow so rancid so quickly. They're burned away. Mm. The uh, uh, Masego noted notes here, or rather, Pat mentions that Masego had noted previously that the amount of time that Goblin Fire burns, depending on different uh, fuel sources, there you know the college has this whole chart and tables to determine how long it'll burn. Uh, apparently, the the timing here is uh, made up of magically significant numbers. Um, which Kat says, the implications of which escaped me at the moment. I'm right there with you, Kat. I don't really know what that means, but it sounds interesting. I don't think anything ever comes of that in story, but I do love the little, like, winks from the author, like, ah, oh, there's something extra going on here, and, you know, we'll hint at it, but we won't actually get there. It's, it's, it's nice. I do love the idea, though, that there are just magically significant numbers there, which makes so much sense to me. Because if you observed a phenomenon in the world and then explain to me how pi and e and is the golden ratio e? I don't know what. Don't so. Does the golden ratio have a symbol? It must. Oh, wait. I know how math is done. I can do this. You know, and you told me that it's pi or e or omicron or delta or alpha or beta or gamma or because it's all Greek letters. But, you know, I could nod and say, interesting. You're telling me in most countries, the largest city is 3.14 times larger than the second largest city? Almost universally when you average it out? That, huh, means a lot. I bet that's true for the Vatican. Hmm. Be more appropriate if it were seven. Yep, in the Vatican, the largest city is seven times the population of the second largest city. Isn't the population of the Vatican like two popes per square mile or three or something? It's multiple popes per square mile, yeah. And it's half the number that it was recently. And it's still multiple. Mm-hmm. And the number of first ladies in the Carter residence is now zero, because she died today. Hmm. Which means Jimmy's probably going soon, because I feel like there are a couple that's going to die together. I love how Catherine says, yes, interesting numbers, lots of significance. Well, you know, it's kind of my thing, so I got to care, right? People say I'm good at goblin fire, so I guess I'm going to be good at goblin fire. So it, It's really just peer pressure on a large scale. I do appreciate goblin fire is 
going to always, 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 always be something in her brand, mm-hmm. a piece of her, but she doesn't go whole hog on that either. Like when we were talking to EE, which we did, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. We talked about how there were so many elements that don't come to be a whole thing and how Catherine's power sets aren't moving towards an end game, but they're rather where she is at the point. Mm-hmm. And while Goblin Fire is always there, her necromancy is always there, frankly. Her difficulty looking certain things in the eye without a coping mechanism is always there, even when she manages to do it consistently. Goblin Fire isn't an arc reaching towards its final evolution. It's just a piece of her journey. Very much how people tend to be. Would have been cool, though, if she had gone from being the squire to being, like, the green flame knight or something. The Goblin Firer. The Goblin Firer. Yeah, that's... That's a really good name. Well, it seemed really promising, but all of a sudden you notice that her legion was only orcs, ogres, and humans. It wasn't in the sense we were hoping for. Oh, dang. That would be a huge mistake. Don't fire your goblins, people. Not for their sake. I mean, for everyone's sake. Honestly, for their sake, too. Like, don't be a bad employer. But also for your own sake, seriously, don't fire your goblins. Um, so, speaking of cats, uh, legion and their makeup um we get this interesting discussion here where cat is um debating whether or not to go back to the front lines but she says at this point there's no real need um it seems like the um it seems like the enemy is breaking the silver spears it seems like the silver spears is breaking um and rather than going in and finishing off the enemy cat stays out of it she doesn't really weigh the pros and cons of doing this when, in terms of casualties. Like she, the fact that she might save some of her legionaries' lives doesn't factor in. But rather, so I, which is to say, I think she agrees with Juniper. Soldiers are meant to die. Whoops. But what she does say is that she doesn't want the fifteenth to get used to relying on her to soften up the enemy. She wants them to be able to operate independently of her. Uh, that's. In her mind, that's the point of having a legion to call her own, that they are capable of doing things that she is not and that she, rather that she cannot or that she is not actively doing. And it's, I think that's an interesting stance to take for her because I feel as though there's an easy argument to be, to go either way with that, that the legion is there to support Catherine and therefore she shouldn't help them too much and they need to be able to stand on their own. The other side of that thing is like the, you know, Olin style of leadership where you do lead from the front and make your legion more directly supported by you and reliant on you because then it's a more effective legion for your goals. If if Catherine make is there at the front of the 15th, then the 15th will support what her aims are more effectively because there's a named at the front. So I you know, I can see it going either way, and it's odd to me that Catherine landed on the side that means her people are going to take more casualties. I also just have a quarrel with the concept that, hey, if I go in and stop my people from dying so hard, they will get lazy, they will be bad, they will not be able to operate independently of me to a degree significantly greater than if I didn't intervene. Like, this isn't actually a leadership usurpation. Juniper made the plan. Catherine going in and making it work. I actually think she's making excuses to be lazy. The problem is, soldiers these days just don't want to fight on their own. They need to pull themselves up. Honestly! They need to pull themselves up by their uh, polygai straps, I think that's the word, and and kill the enemy and handle things on their own. As a noted fan of brassicas, I agree we all need to pull ourselves up by cauliflower, because it's a delicious vegetable that I don't think I've eaten in some months, which is a shame. I'm sure you could acquire some cauliflower pretty quickly if you wanted to. Actually, I did have cauliflower in, I think, the last week. It was a frozen vegetable mix that was found in the freezer. Really, already a frozen vegetable yeah. mix, so mediocrity is the best it could be. Mm-hmm. But this was too old, I think, overcooked over microwaved weirdly browned everywhere browned is a and, very generous word i i think it was more gray uh, which so, is definitely what you want from your veggies right yeah and speaking of horrors of that day mm-hmm. 
Catherine, in her analysis of this battle, sees her legionaries ramming themselves into the men-at-arms who are still fighting. And for a mm. moment, it looked like even after the horrors of the day, the mercenaries would hold. And I don't care that I'm not doing war and would, in fact, violate law to avoid being part of a war. I want these mercenaries. I, I will hire them. I want to... I, these are the people I want on my side. They're unstoppable. They're unbreakable. They will literally never break. I have full faith in them, and I would stake my honor on them being the true heroes of the story. Well, Nock and his ogres show up, and the mercenaries flee. Okay, but I would too. I mean, yeah. Nock is terrifying. And, you know, ogres too. Like, remember David and Goliath from the Hebrew Scriptures? Where the entire war was stopped by a 10-foot-tall guy? Yep. How about a group of armor-plated 15-foot giants with hammers. Yeah, but you gotta remember, this is we're, Goliath was dealing with Bronze Age technology, and we all know bronze is soft and weak and can't even kill people. This is steel. Common misconception. Bronze is not soft and weak. People were just not the soft, weak men of today. Mm. They were real men with right. strong Bron- bones. As they say. They were hard men. Bronze, bronze times make hard men. <laughs> Hard men make Bronze. bad iron. <laughs> bad iron makes weak men, and weak men make bronze times. There it is, baby. <laughs> oh, what a terribly toxic line of thought if you were to actually follow it without all the jokes. Yeah, sincerely. Toxic and also Grow just up. bad history. Like, read a book. Uh, I will. And in fact, I'm reading one now. Oh, and nice. in it, a character, Aisha, says, Bin Hamar. Or maybe, because I do like throat noises, can I say that the H is going to be more of a and make it a bin chamar? Because I like that more. I think you can. Bin chamar. And I have no idea what that means, but she curses into Grebby. And I apologize for violating uh, any of the policies of whatever source you're getting this podcast from. This should have an explicit reign, but that's between you and me. And also, for official purposes, that was a joke. But let's keep an eye on Bin Hamar and see if we ever get any idea what it means. The commanders are all up here. Kat and her lieutenants are all up here uh, keeping an eye on the last dredges of the battle. And Kat makes a, a decision, a bit of analysis, and Juniper agrees. Uh, she, you know, begins, foundling is right, but she sounds a little perturbed by the act of speaking those words. It's these two started off as opponents, and we know that they become friends and co- very good coworkers, and they, you know they they they're fine together. They they become close, and it's nice to see that mutual respect starting to grow even this early. Their first battle, and they are on the same page and working together well. I really do love the closeness of the members of the senior staff. And I also really appreciate that that closeness never crosses the line into anything. It's very professional. Especially, yeah. And it, of course it's going to be. Juniper is a consummate professional mm-hmm. who would never... Consummate anything? Would never countenance mm-hmm. workplace relationships. Gotcha. Much less, yes. <laughs> I couldn't imagine she would allow, you know, Catherine to get into any business with the actual leadership. Sure, sure, sure. Or sure. anyone else, really. Like, she... she she keeps an eye on those around her. A very she keeps close a firm eye. hand on uh, on the affairs. Uh huh. If you've she, got one more in you, we will need the explicit rating. I think. I choose not to. However, I oh. just note that you used the term "in you," and the preposition "in" can be used to. Uh, so, okay. <laughs> Aisha is done with being stressed over the battle, and says, "Juniper and Catherine, those two need to have a drink." Take a moment to hecking, enjoy it at least, and here we get the answer to every single question I have ever had Finally. in my life. Catherine says, narrates, whatever this story is again. Huh, first time I'd ever heard her curse in Lower Meetson, which is, I, I understand that it's a major language and all, but I think it's wild that there is a legion of the Dread Empire Praise that conducts its meetings at the highest level in Lower Meetson. And I get that Catherine's the protagonist in diegetic ways. 
But still, wow. I, how fun to know. Normally, I think that legions were conducted in either Mthethwa or some kind of Mthethwa to Grebi hybrid, though, since they're both part of the same country's linguistic tapestry, that's more of a, you know, inbreeding situation. That is a segue. Uh, I don't really have anything to say about the following other than it's a funny line. There's, uh, Catherine notes that better breeding demands better manners. Uh, talking about how Aisha wasn't stuck up, just formal. Um, but then she goes on to note that Dockside, that saying, was a bit different. Inbreeding demands pompousness. And I think she's probably right when, it, you know, talking about or the Dockside. The Dockside folks are probably right when it comes to nobility. And, uh, you know, it's pretty solid. I just really like the line. And you know what else I like? I know you said you like it, but our opinions are one and the same always. Mm-hmm. I like that the Legion is still very strong. <clears throat> uh, it's phrased positively somehow. Yeah, so... Because Hawkram's such a cheery guy. Hawkram's a cheery guy, and he lets us know how the Legion is doing. Um, Nox, uh, Kabili was mauled. Various front, you know, different chunks of the army were are doing poorly, but the Sappers and Crossbowmen got off light, and so did the Reserve. And so Hawkram notes that we should, not even confirmed on this, still have over a thousand legionaries in shape to fight for Marchford. A thousand. A legion's full strength is about 4,000. This legion was, what, approximately half strength? I know that we're going to get this information shortly, because I don't think it has happened yet. No. Uh, assuming the legion was about half strength, that is atrocious casualties for just like their first battle to show up in the, the legion's first battle and take 50% casualties. Uh, we, we joked a lot about, well, actually it wasn't, it was mostly not jokes. We talked a lot about how the mercenaries refused to break in the face of horrors beyond imagining. Most armies don't stand and fight with 50% casualties on the field. That is horrifying. And the follow-up to that is, is a thousand soldiers actually enough to meaningfully interact with Marchford? A thousand is a is not very many when it comes to soldiers trying to interact with a city. It seems as though the fifteenth has been uh, pretty well put out of commission by most standards. I would say, especially since of that thousand, four hundred of them can't be in a shield wall because they're goblins. Can't or just won't. Fair. The problem with goblins these days is none of them want to be literally squished. But when Catherine notes that about the goblins, Hakram says, we'll manage. We always do. And I love the enthusiasm. I love the white-knuckled confidence. And it'd be a great statement and sentiment two books down the line, three, four books down the line, five books down the line, six books down the line, the secret eighth book that you and I know about. That's we a hey, joke. We weren't supposed to say that on the podcast. That part's not a joke, though. <laughs> but we always do is true. They managed one time. The first war game, Catherine just did it. The second war game, they got to rough odds, and then Catherine went around them. The third major conflict Catherine has faced with her with an army is this one. So, yeah, you always do. You won a battle that specifically disabled you before the next. I love you, Hakram, but... Now, if this sounds like the way you're approaching this is that you're disagreeing with Hakram, he is right. They always have managed so far. I, I don't know what you're, what part of this you're disagreeing with. Like, sample size? Please, stats are made up. No, no, I said I love him. Oh. And if you start with that, you're literally allowed to use any criticism of anyone, and no one can criticize you. So it's like being from the South. You being me. It's like being from the South and saying, bless their heart, before you say something. Hey, the podcast rating. <laughs> You're right. My bad. My bad. And speaking of hearts, probably, I imagine orcs eat them. The, uh, we, we get a, a little bit into orc cannibalism here, uh, because, which first of all, is it cannibalism if orcs eat humans? Meh. That's what's going on here. Uh, the Precy aren't a big fan of the cannibalism that orcs do, but the legions allow it as long as uh, the orcs only eat enemy corpses. 
But then Kat goes on to tell us that the cannibalism was one of the reasons Precy armies moved much quicker on the march than most other armies on the continent. The supply train could be much lighter if after every battle, half your army could make a meal of the enemy. Now, far be it from me to um, human splain orc-eating habits here, but if you get... Okay, it's... If you... Put in a butt after that. You're about to human splain. You're right. Be the solution. Well, actually, if you much better get, <laughs> if you get one special meal every time you fight a battle, I don't think that meaningfully affects your supply train because you probably aren't fighting that many battles, and the amount of time you spend marching versus the amount of time you spend eating the dead or even just fighting, the the ratio there is excessively skewed towards just marching and it doesn't sound like the orcs are collecting corpses and bringing with them just kind of having a post-battle snack i fully believe that precy armies march faster than anyone else on the continent they're the most professional military like in terms of discipline and military professionalism not just has soldiers that get paid so it makes sense it's you know it's like rome was famous for marching really quickly because their soldiers just were made for marching. Rome soldiers were made for marching. Precy soldiers are made for dying. But I, the idea that eating the enemies sometimes is speeding up the army in a meaningful way is very funny. I, I just, I like the idea that Prace is constantly fighting, and that doesn't slow them down. But the orcs can just eat people, so it's just fine. They don't bring food for the orcs. They just trust that they're going to kill enough people to to feed them all. They bring enough food for the orcs. But enough food is calculated based on eating people. Sure, sure, sure. But also, I understand your hesitation, but you have to think of this in the way that makes it work. Oh, and what way is that? Well, biologically speaking, what kind of animal is an orc? Are, are you asking if they're like mammals or? No, the correct answer is they are fish. Okay. Most closely related, obviously, to sharks. Okay. Correct? And according to the. Oh, I follow now. Okay. Yes. Because if sharks ever stop swimming, they die. If orcs ever start stop marching, they die. That's why they're so fast. It's not about eating. No, habits. it's because they're smooth. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we've been smooth orcs. <laughs> wow. I feel like, huh? Now, according to the famously humane and morally unimpeachable conservation organization SeaWorld. A shark eats about 1% to 10% of its total body weight per week. And a sand tiger shark, which is the orkiest shark, according to SeaWorld, weighing 131 kilograms, or in American, 289 pounds, may eat just 4 to 13 pounds a week. Or in communist, the rest of the world, 2 to 6 kilograms. Which means an orc eats, an orc weighing 300 pounds, eats 4 pounds of food a week, how many pounds are in a human arm? Well, these are big, beefy soldiers, so literally 300, which means they don't have to eat for days after a battle. They just have to kill people once in a while. It makes a difference. Did you say that an, a human's arm weighs 300 pounds? I round it up. Oh, well, yeah, I guess it is worth rounding, just so we can get nice round numbers here, nice even numbers. So thank you for that. Also, just listen to any completely uninformed TikTok by one of those people who has made a terrible choice and gone on a carnivore diet and thinks that that's helping their health instead of killing them because it cut out the one allergen that they actually didn't know about. Eating an all-meat diet like an orc means you're basically immortal. Uh, yeah, I guess we never see an orc die on screen, ever. None of them. So they're immortal too. Yeah, you didn't expect that you're going to be getting hot takes about fad diets on this episode of Podcast Guys, but we're not afraid of the facts we're not going to shy away from the only thing people are talking about this week the only news mm -hmm. item and you know you you gotta you gotta be ready when you come here have your oven mitts on because our takes are so hot just fresh off the presses that's why they're hot <laughs> that's why you need oven mitts you know things like don't eat just meat and that is an opinion that's not just my own but the, it's the position of nine out of ten Asher and Mage Doctors. It, okay. Yeah, that, Catherine just mentions that Mage Doctors from Asher mm -hmm. are a thing, and they're the best healers. And I don't think we ever hear more about them, do we? Uh, it's not ringing any bells, but I am 
almost 100% certain that if they are mentioned again, even offhandedly at any point in the next five books, that uh, one of our listeners will speak up. And if that listener is you, dear listener, okay, thank you. Thanks, yeah, cool. I, Neat. I, I really appreciate it. it this, this is not a platform for us. It's a platform for the community. We just get the credit. We just get the credit and have to do all the work, so no big deal. But all this aside, Catherine is a monster now. And as she becomes a monster, she gives us a peek into the psychology of other monsters, like the tyrants of Prace. And she, hmm, she, she kind of offers some, like, armchair, well, armchair's too removed, some sitting on the same couch as the tyrants, uh, philosophy or not philosophy psychology that's the word i'm looking for about the tyrants and why they do what they do and how evil works when it comes to the people at the peak of the evil pyramid the tower we go with the tower here um she makes the claim that tyrants don't care if heroes freed their monsters or destroyed their ancient magical weapon if the tower is brought down on their head all of these things because he says that they don't care if they lose because at the end of the conflict even if everything has collapsed, evil has already won. And her argument here is basically legacy. It's that a hundred years from now, someone was going to look, or here, we'll, we'll just read what Catherine says. You'd won because in a hundred years, someone was going to look at the ruins of your madness and their blood was going to run cold. Like a child screaming at the night, you filled the silence so that someone would hear. Now, I am sure that there were tyrants and other evil-named-overlord-type people in Kalernian history for whom this would have constituted a victory. But this seems like such a specific type of particular paradigm to view the world that would apply to a few individuals that it is wild to be just broadly applying it to all tyrants that tyrants are okay losing, that they're not seeking <laughs> immortality or uh, 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 other, any other kind of like specific tangible goal. They are seeking being a f the source of fear a hundred years down the line, being the Ozymandias of race, of, of Colonia. I don't know. It's such a broad brush to be painting this. And I, I understand that names are going to coalesce around certain ideas and that the fact that they share a role probably does nudge them in this direction. But to say that success is just, yep, people are scared of you. I don't know. That, that feels like a bit of a stretch on Kat's part. Came across a traveler from an antique land who said, ooh, you know who is really spooky? But Ozzy, he, he was a king. I, I saw a leg in the desert and I did quake. Yeah. Catherine is seeing an aspect evil can use, but I don't think Maleficent the first, when she was throwing off the yoke of the Meatsons, said, you know what I want? I want people to have nightmares about me. I think she said, hey, I'm basically Catherine a million years ago. Metaphorical million. Important to remember, not just I want people to have nightmares about me, but I want people who aren't even born yet to have nightmares about me. It's not... I want everybody alive now to live in fear because that would be a victory. I think like that, if you said, yep, tyrants want people to fear them while they're alive. Okay, sure. Probably true. But to say that tyrants want people who are going to live a century down the line to fear them. How, I don't know. Yeah. It, it's, it's a lot. To be fair. If you could tell me I could make people a century down the line, fear me. I mean, yeah, it'd be nice of course, but is that, would you, would you consider that a victory for your life? If that is all you achieved? Merely a victory for the podcast. Fair. I mean, a century down the line, we'll still be recording this thing, so I think it's fine. That was very mean of you to acknowledge. But this revelation, this epiphany, this delusion speaks to something deep within Catherine. Delusions tend to speak to Catherine, I think. Did you say delusions speak to Catherine? <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. But... <clears throat> uh. Man, you're really just not leaving me much to work with on that transition, huh? No, you didn't like it? Something deep within Catherine. Uh-huh. So... Do you want me to instead mention the spirit from Spirit Island, sharp fangs behind the leaves? Yeah, that'd be a much better transition. Thank you. Have you ever played Spirit Island? I have. There's a spirit in it called sharp fangs behind the leaves. That's your transition now. You're welcome. Oh, thank you. 
Catherine is we get we get another peek at Catherine's name here at uh, how she visualizes her name or how it visualizes itself I suppose um, she is manifests yeah how her name manifests sure uh, she is seeing the path ahead of her in comparison with what we talked about just now about the you know the fear down the line and she is unconcerned about who it is that she stands against she says here whether they are whether they be gods or kings or all the armies of creation and you know being able to stand against that but her name bears its fangs in approval of this uh so obviously catherine's name is pretty beastie and i'm sticking with beastie apparently and like the boys yep catherine has beastie boy name uh, no i meant the series based on the comics mm. Catherine's name is a, a green teenager. Um, <laughs> she... No, I, I meant the one with the America superhero who kills people. Mm, my bad. He's a right. boy. Yep, thank you. Uh, Catherine's name has fangs. It it bears them in approval when she stands against the world. It's uh, it's a fierceness. It's a, another bit of description on on her name and how she visualizes it. It's neat. I like it when we get uh, these little glimpses. But it also bears mentioning <laughs> that when Catherine gets these approving bared fangs, she shivers, wishing she thought of putting on her cloak and returning to her legion. She quails before it, like Poseidon before the Sand Guardian, Guardian of the Sand. And I think that's a really big thing. She's here in front of a battle where she has seen atrocity performed for her ends by her order, which is inherent to warfare, don't get me wrong. Some particular nasty stuff happened, but that's how war. And she feels nothing. But then she feels this power within her, embracing that which she could become, and she knows well to fear it. That's fun! It's fun for us. I wouldn't say it's fun for Catherine fully. Uh, Neither are the casualty counts. Yeah, uh, Juniper... Uh, reports to Catherine and the rest of the lieutenants shortly after this as Cat returns back to... Uh, and we find out 300 dead and twice that in wounded. Keeping in mind that that leaves us with 900 casualties and 1,000 soldiers left, that means that they marched out here with less than half of a legion, which we knew, but I don't know. I, I A smaller than 2,000 soldier army... Army? Question mark. Uh legion is an interesting choice like what is going on behind the scenes that every every time we get more information about the 15th it feels more and more as though uh catherine was not supposed to survive out here uh which is creating a stronger catherine you know bad legions make strong queens and strong queens make good legions and good good crusade targets oh yeah that is how that goes you're right and good crusade targets end up on a path that sees so much go so wrong. And so much going so wrong makes the best web serial of all time. Yeah, I said it. it. Practical Guide is something I personally enjoy more than Worm. I'm on record. Wow, I, I can't believe you come out with such a firm stance like that. Wildbo, I know you're listening. And take note, you should read this. Also, why are you here if you haven't read it? Grow up. <laughs> also, thanks for Worm. I, I, it was a very good time for me. Oh, yeah. I finished it when I was in Germany. I had a lot of long bus rides. So, do you remember early on when Black was having a nice mid-morning drink and Catherine was horrified by the concept of alcohol existing in the world? Yes. Well, she takes a drink from a water skin and then notices there's a taste to it. She looks at Hakram, whose attempted innocent expression demonstrates his guilt, and she says, well, if you wanted to add Arag to this stuff, I wouldn't complain. We are not anywhere into actual alcoholism at this point. This is a path she will walk. And it will have more acute cause than just life is hard as a legionary. Life's hard when your heart is pulled out. But casually accepting alcohol casually being snuck around is certainly movement along the path. Let's keep an eye on this. Especially, here's some water to help you hydrate after a battle. Oh, if only this had very hard alcohol in it. That would help me hydrate. Yeah, hey, Kat, let, let's uh, let's be careful here. This is a published web fiction. Yeah. It's not the final form of the guide. 
Neither, in fact, is the Yonder version, as we now all know. Because if you're listening to this episode of the podcast and you didn't listen to the EE interview, why have you not listened to the EE interview? That's that's the whole thing. But we know that even the Yonder version isn't the final version. Mm-hmm. And so there exist typos. There exist a few timetable discrepancies. There exist things that will be smoothed over later. And we don't need to mention all of them because they don't detract and they're not a big deal. But I'd like to mention one thing that matters a little bit. Okay. They're moving forward. They're marching after fording the river. And Aisha tells us that they should have about 1,000 in fighting shape for summer home. And that is a typo, right? That's just not, not in the picture, right? Am I confused, right? Oh, I see. I thought you were saying that that's not a city. I was like, it is, definitely. Right, they're going to Marchford. I mean, Summerholm's technically a city. But in the same way that, like, I don't know, Chicago's a city. Grow up, there's only one city. It's Wolof, which meets Otter somehow. <laughs> nope, the United States only has one city. And that city is Tallahassee. Why would I pick? Wolof is a Tallahassee. Now that's a stance. I would love to hear you <laughs> defend that. Speak on that one for me. Uh, it's an extremely well-known and violent version of a much wider genre. Because while Tallahassee is possibly the most famous Mountain Goats album, it's not really unique or special for that. It's just a special... It's a particular incarnation of their work. Tallahassee is a good album, though. Cat is concerned because... Speaking of toxic relationships... Uh-huh. <laughs> Cat is concerned because uh, her gal pal, her roommate, her... Sorry, Paramore isn't here uh to rep- hmm? we've done it before we've done it many times and yet for some reason right now i do feel the urge to just note that the minimalization of a same-sex female romance oh yeah it is a total meme thing from the internet and if you're not familiar with yeah. gals who are pals i the, we, we we're nodding at this we it, it's a it's a goof on the dumb people who are somehow unaware that women can be romantically involved with other women and insist on referring to them as friends or roommates or gal pals or whatever nonsense. Uh, uh, Carcinogen and Catherine are romantically involved. <laughs> they, they are romantically involved. I'm very well aware of that. I am not minimizing it out of a weird bigotry. I am making fun of people who would, to be clear. But she's not here, and that's concerning because she should be here to report on casualties. And on how the healers are doing. And Aisha... Well, I can tell you how one healer is doing. Right. <laughs> Aisha responds to Catherine's concern in maybe the most concerning way possible, short of a euphemism like, she's no longer with us or something. She says, she's unconscious at the moment. We go on to find out, yeah, it's because she drew too deeply on her magic, and so she, you know, went into a brief mage coma, like you do. She's completely fine. She just needs some time to rest and recover. No worries. But to lead with just a complete sentence, she's unconscious at the moment, does make it sound like she maybe took a head wound or a, a face wound or whatever kind of wound knocks out Faye. As I remember my lore from Peter Pan properly, the kind of wound that knocks out a fairy is disbelief. Mm, yeah. And I'd like everyone listening to the podcast now to say it with me. There's no such thing as fairies. Perfect, yeah. Because otherwise they're going to invade. So really, this is Kat's problem, because she just can't believe how dang It's not hot. butter. Pardon? She, yeah. she can't believe it's Kat, not butter. Kat, Kat can't believe that it's not butter. And thus, her fey girlfriend passes out. I'm not sure how far and why, how widely dispersed a particular brand is in the world or was. I can't believe it's not butter is. I don't know what stores carry these days. Is or was a margarine butter substitute in the United States. And margarine was illegal in Wisconsin for some time. Because Wisconsin is where the best dairy in the world comes from and the greatest cheese is. I said it. Fight me, Italy. And friends, come on. We all know better. And you know what else we know? What else do we know? Ogres are huge. Yeah. There's... A moment where Hewn and Nock are heading in the direction of this conversation, and Nock delivers one of his famously punchy jokes. Not physically punchy, just like clever and sharp. And 
Hewn laugh and pat the top of his head fondly. Just like this casual, I don't know, that feels super patronizing to me. Just this casual, like, pat your friend on the top of his head for doing a good job with the goof. I don't know. It's such a funny image of, you know, large ogre just, oh, nice job, Nock. You did a funny one. Okay, but my transition into this matters because what are the last five or four, depending on how you count the hyphen, words of that sentence? I choose to count the hyphen as its own word. Oh, that's six words, please. Then one, two, three, four, five, six. With her pan-sized hand. Pan, in case the mic isn't clear here, P-A-N, like the things you cook on. Those are big hands. And I have to agree, I spend time regularly with a four-year-old, and I pat him on the head regularly. Oh, It's affectionate and avuncular. I was worried you were going to say that this four-year-old has pan-sized hands as well. That's too big for a four-year-old. He's four. He's basically (laughs) pan-sized. Oh, okay. And in my eyes no less mature than a 25-year-old. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Uh, remember how you said Nock was punchy and or sharp? Yes. Nock punches someone. Whoa. Well, oh, it's an open-hand impact, so it's a palm punch. A palm punch that does probably very little damage to the person then, like just a slap, like a friendly slap? You know, just flying teeth and a man sprawling into the mud. Did the guy make a bad joke? Because we know Nock likes jokes. No, I think E.E. made the bad joke. Are you referring jokes to... jokes on us? Yeah, I was going to say, are you the death of a beloved character as a bad joke? Please let it be. Come on, E.E., mm. this is a bridge too far. Oh, wow. Because, uh, I'm sorry, keep that foreshadowing on hand, because people ring around him and try to stop him. Nock has gone into the red rage, they're surrounding him to hold him off, and Catherine goes in to fight him back to sense, which is a necessary and difficult thing. Mm-hmm. And Catherine, who has a healthy relationship to herself and the world, yep. narrates, it had been a while since I'd gotten to fight someone without swords being involved. You, you, you know how you just look back once in a while and think how long it's been since you'd gotten to fight someone without a weapon? Well, you gotta remember, when Kat was an orphan, she was saving up money by... I don't know why I said when Cat was an orphan. When Cat was living in an orphanage. Well, <laughs> I mean, for certain definitions of orphanhood, her orphanhood is minimizing. And those are two definitions of orphanhood. Yeah, that's true. One, she's getting older, and I think most people don't consider Joe Biden to be an orphan. But I assume his parents are dead. And if not, why don't we know more about them? What are they hiding? Why are they not continuous tribunals in congress rather than anything getting done i think I it'd be no i think it'd be fun to start referring to joe B- biden as our orphan president <laughs> but then he sounds cool yeah that's true but by the second definition orphan is someone without parents and if someone is adopted you don't call them an orphan under this use of the word orphan mm-hmm. and Catherine is in the process of acquisition and a fine a father and a terrible frightening stepmother with whom she will squabble till the end of their days. Well, the end of the stepmother's days. Right. Well, she's going to go full fairy tale on the stepmother. Cat's de-orphanization aside, when she was living in an orphanage, she engaged in pit fighting with her hands, and apparently that's a fond memory for her, which is, huh. To be fair, Catherine Foundling strikes me as one of those people who has that deeply unhealthy worldview and mindset of, you know, I try to get punched in the face at least once a year so that I'm ready for it when it comes. Uh, Nock has a fall with Catherine on him. Nock has a fall. <laughs> yep. Not getting... and he's... Hmm? Go ahead. And he slowly comes back to, and Catherine finds out what upset him. What kind of news was a bridge too far? How she could bridge the gap in understanding. And, um, yeah... It's Kaladin. R.I.P. Stormlight Archives reference. It's the bridge boy. Yep. And that's actually really bad. Because I didn't care about him the first time I read this. He kind of escaped my notice. But this time through, I'm fond of him. He's a nerd. He's a cute little nerd. And basically the only thing Nock cares about other than large bovine creatures. And fighting. Don't forget fighting. That's why when right. he loses one of the three things he cares about, he goes immediately into the uh, one of the others. 
and there are no there's no sweet sweet bovine to romance i'm here to romance bovines and beat up my friends and i'm all out of bovines also out of friends yikes (laughs) but this guy freaked out tried to kill a guy tried to kill the people stopping him from killing the guy tried to kill the most important person around and his boss and Catherine helps him up and says to us there was nothing shameful about grieving a dead friend and and like Correct, yes. Mm-hmm. Gr- grieve a friend. I think uh, it was C.S. Lewis who liked to go by the name Jack rather than Clive Staples. And frankly, I would prefer most things to be called Clive Staples as well. Who noted that losing a friend is also a loss of the self because the parts of you that the friend brings out are now no longer ever to be brought out again. And that's all great and all. But uh, I don't think he followed that up with, so you should totally slap a guy over it until his teeth come out you should perform some palm-based orthodontistry palm-based orthodontistry that's pretty good i guess it's not orthodontist palm-based heterodontistry there you go (laughs) now there's a threat hey why don't you come over here and get some heterodontistry i've been in so many bar fights and then in response to this Catherine just makes some really bad choices as a military leader Mm -hmm. so knock even if not bad choices, I'm not evaluating the choices. Not actually. Bad. She uses really bad reasoning for her choices as a military leader. Knock, when he finds out, his his scale of poorly channeled grief is hurts a guy and gets hurt by a, another person. Katz is to order Hawkroom to get the goblin companies ready because she doesn't want prisoners anymore. And that doesn't mean get the goblins ready to break camp and get moving. They're going to hunt down and kill these mercenaries because... Uh, let's see, the wrong soldier on her side died. The 300, sorry, the 299 other soldiers that died, eh, cost of doing business. Nillin, though, all right, now we're executing a bunch of people? Where'd all that practicality... To be fair, it is Nillin. But where'd all the practicality go? The, the enemy didn't do this on purpose, I mean, aside from, like, the obvious fighting. They weren't like, ah, we're going to hurt Catherine Foundling by killing one of her friends. They were just, there was a war. It's a battle. <laughs> like This weird, I'm going to kill everybody involved is such a weird turn for Catherine. But I mean, she is a villain, so I guess it's fine. She will be remembered a okay. hundred years from now for killing prisoners, I guess. Uh, how about 2,500 years from now? Because if I remember 2,500 years back, when the great Achilles had his dear friend and close roommate Tragically injured. He also went on a... Uh... Tragically injured. <laughs> <laughs> he also had had a bit of a fit. And that was just over, you know, a, a a friend. A gal pal, if you will. Yeah. Hey, just a I'm quick... a masculine. Just a quick check here. When do you think the Trojan War is supposed to have happened? Well, I was actually thinking of when the... Uh... Iliad happened. Okay, okay, that makes much more sense because the date you gave was uh, like a bit past the. But sure, okay. Everyone, welcome to Podcast Guys Talking Tangents, where I do have to note I've been reading uh, Snorri Sturluson's Edda, and he takes the Norse gods and follows and draws a line to say that these are just people from Troy. And I love it so much. Everybody's just from Troy. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today, folks. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Red as we discuss... A pyre warming. A squire mourning. And a dire warning. That somehow is the word egg? Wade in their yolk. I mean blood. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan main podcast discussing Erratic Errata's Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Hip Hop Beat by Enhe. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is The Price of Freedom by Daddy S Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at The Long Price. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed? I am too, frankly. 
Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name. Receive personalized stories and art and access at least one patron-exclusive tangent. We implore you. Don't consider joining unless you're already supporting all the artists who make this possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Gray, our patron and Liege, always the claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fae Knight, our patron and mentor, the traveling teacher, our patron and dear friend, Aaron, our patron and inspiration, the hopeful romantic, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 21, Marchford.